Welcome to the Awaken Podcast. At Awaken Church, we are passionate about wrestling with and being unraveled by the Christian scriptures. Ideally, we do this together around the table in the neighborhood of Bonas. As we see it, Jesus has invited all of us to encounter Him in a diverse community and participate with Him in a mission of loving our neighbors. All right, my friends. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and after breaking it, he said, this is my body broken for you. On the fourth Sunday of Lent, we are lingering here in this final night and this final day in the life of Jesus. As you know, if you've, uh, this is the fourth Sunday in Lent. And so if you've been here the four more weeks, um, this night, the night he was betrayed, began with Jesus eating the Passover meal with his disciples and then walking to a garden on the Mount of Olives to pray and to weep and to beg God to take the cup from him and to ultimately surrender to the breaking of his body and the pouring out of his blood. In the garden, he asked his disciples to stay awake with him, to keep watch, to be alert, to stay present, but they continued to fall asleep. Suddenly, Judas and the religious authorities arrived in the garden very late at night, and Judas greeted Jesus with a kiss. Upon kissing Jesus, uh, the authority figures immediately put their hands on his body to take him in for questioning. The ear of a slave is cut off, and the disciples flee. One of them flees naked. The authorities take Jesus down to the house of the high priest, and we learn that Peter followed him there but kept his distance. While Jesus was inside the high priest's home, he was being interrogated, beaten, mocked, blindfolded, spit on. Peter was right outside at the fire warming himself with the servants and the employees of the high priest, and they began to interrogate, asking Peter if he was with Jesus. And Peter emphatically said no three times before hearing the rooster crow. And in that moment, he remembered what Jesus had said the evening before around the dinner table. And this is where we are uh, in our story today. The rooster has crowed, so the light of a new day has dawned. It's the very early morning. They leave the high priest's house, and they carry Jesus to a man named Pontius Pilate. Now, it's a famous name. A lot of folks, I think, don't understand quite, like, what his role is or why, sort of how it, why it goes this way. But um, I'm going to read to you the text. It's only five verses today. It's short. So Darcy read it once. I'll read it now, and then we'll read it at the end. Oh, never mind. We're not going to read it. Go back to the screen. Darcy read it. Early in the morning, the Sanhedrin, the leadership, they bring Jesus to Pilate. They make accusations against him, and Pilate simply says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus does not really answer. He just says, you say so, or so they say, apparently. You know, like there's this kind of so they say. And they continue to heap accusations at him, and um, Pilate says, aren't you going to defend yourself? And Jesus stands silent, and uh, Peter, uh, Pilate is amazed or marvels, and it ends. It's, a, it's an important moment. Um, but what I want to do, I'm trying to take a different approach to help us to really get into this story during this series. But I'm going to be a map preacher today. If anyone likes maps and geography and history, here we go. So here's a map. Now, I'm not sure if you'll be able to see this. And I don't, I'm not high tech enough to have a laser pointer, but that'd be amazing. I bet, who has a cat? Someone had laser pointers, I could have asked. Probably Megan or Kathy. Anyway, there's a few. So if you can't quite see it, um, I can sort of direct you. But OK, I have to be able to see it too. In the, kind of center in the right 
that little block there is the Garden of Gethsemane. So far off to the right in the corner. And the Garden of Gethsemane is on the Mount of Olives. So you'd have to imagine a big mountain if you can kind of read maps and see the, the curvature of the land. That's where the garden is. But down here on the bottom left, there's a black box. And that's where the Last Supper was, where they had their meal. So they walk kind of the far outer. Oh, yeah. Then come down. I see the pointer. Thank you. Through the man. And then they go up. The Kidron Valley to the garden. And this is just over a mile. So probably the same distance as if we walked from here to the weeping tree together as a church to go do some prayers. And they're there in the garden. And then that's where Jesus is arrested. And then interestingly, they carry him back, not on the outside, but kind of through the center of the map near where they had the last supper to the house of the high priest. They've carried him about another mile. And they spend several hours in the night kind of beating him and interrogating him. And then from there, they carry him to Pontius Pilate's house. So you go up. Yep. Over. Up more. All the way up. So he circles the whole city in this night. Um, if you can picture that. Uh, there's, I'm going to show you another thing um, just to get you into the scene. Um, the next slide is an image from modern day um, taken on where Gethsemane would be or the Mount of Olives. So now you can tell there's a mountain. You can tell there's a real hill. Hey, you can imagine like, that's not just a one mile walk. There's also a bit of a climb. Um, so he, you, you can imagine you're right now standing in the garden of Gethsemane and that in front of you is what would have been the temple. So then imagine walking up here, praying through the night and then they, he gets arrested and carried off kind of sort of center left of the screen. And then eventually all the way around, almost near the mountain again, kind of all around the Temple Mount there for the scene with Pilate. Um, and then he ends up being executed uh, right near there. So you can go to the next slide. So now here's Golgotha where he's actually executed. You can see the temple in front of you. And then the hill behind the temple is where we just were on Gethsemane. Just to give you a sense of this sort of, it's like one mile, two miles sort of between destinations. But I thought it was kind of profound that he sort of walked all around Jerusalem. And that hill where he prayed in Gethsemane is also the place where he would have wept and said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've longed to gather you under my wings. Like that's kind of a, a historic vantage point to view. And here, um, likely, we're not entirely sure, but approximately where he would have been uh, crucified. So you can go to the next image. Um, just to zoom out. So I want you to see just how like, we'll do a few of these zooms. So. Uh, in the very center, you see the Dead Sea and then the Sea of Galilee at the top. And then this is the Mediterranean Ocean. Beautiful, three bodies of water. And the river between Galilee and the Dead Sea is the Jordan River, where Jesus was baptized. Lovely. So in the north, by the Sea of Galilee, is the region called Galilee. Imagine that's a province, like, say, Alberta. And then the next little province or region is Samaria. And then Judea. Judea is where Jerusalem is. Yeah, Jerusalem's right by your pointer there. Up, up, yep, Jerusalem. So then you can kind of see where it all kind of happens. Now I think, what's the next one? So now we're zooming out again, just to see how like local the story is. This is sort of a big part of our world. Where is Jerusalem and the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea, right? Kind of the Mediterranean Sea in Syria. Yeah, we're like right in there, modern day. So this is big. In a moment, I'm gonna surprise you and show you a map of Canada and how it's like roughly the same amount of distance. So while that's up there for a minute, I want you to think about something. Um, Jesus is a Jew, 
a, a Galilean Jew, and he is on trial. And at this point, he's now on trial with Pilate, who represents Rome and the authority of the Roman Empire. But this map might give you a sense of just how far away they are from Rome. If you look at Italy, kind of right where the letter T hits the bottom is about where Rome is. So that is a, almost 3,000 kilometers away from Caesar, this tiny little situation with this Galilean Jew in the early hours of the morning, the day after Passover. So if we imagine was, Jesus was eating the meal around 7 p.m., say, and then they, we, the text tells us that they sing some sacred songs, some old songs in their like, um, original language. Um, and then they perform these sacred rituals associated with the ancient meal. And then let's say they all tidy up, right? Do we imagine they wash the dishes and tuck the chairs back? I don't know. Um, and then they go on this walk to Gethsemane. So let's say they get to Gethsemane just before midnight. We're just kind of guessing to kind of see how long this, this event is. Um, and then they stay in Gethsemane and they're praying slash sleeping for a few hours. And then maybe Judas appears, uh, I don't know, one in the morning, two in the morning. And uh, he kisses Jesus. Jesus is arrested and then carried that kind of mile long walk to the house of the high priest. And he stays there until the rooster crows. So he must have been there until about five or six in the morning. I'm not sure. I, I should have Googled like When does the sun rise in Jerusalem in April? We could know. But um around five or six in the morning is when uh, they then move from the high priest's house to the other side of Jerusalem and bring him to Pilate's house. So Jesus is no doubt tired. He hasn't slept all night, traumatized. He was just interrogated and beaten and mocked, betrayed. He's all alone. His body's probably really sore. Um, so when I think of um, being in a state of trauma in terms of like fight or flight, I think Jesus standing silent before Pilate, you could see that as a bit of a flight response. Um, they take Jesus to the residence of the Roman ruler Pontius Pilate. So first, um, before they were at Pilate's house, as you know, they were at the high priest's house or in the night, in the middle of the night. Um, and I would say uh, he was there for a trial, quote unquote, okay? So they can't actually have an official trial in the high priest's house. A, there's no formulated charge. They don't have a charge against Jesus. Um, they, they don't have uh, consistent witnesses or testimony. They don't have an actual thing, but they really, really want to get rid of this guy. So they bring him to the high priest's house for sort of an interrogation where they're going to beat him and mock him and try and catch him. And they're going to try and catch him saying something. And then together at the end of this kind of brutal middle of the night episode, they will have decided together what charge they will bring when they present him to Pilate. Okay. So the final charge they end up uh, settling on uh, which they bring to the Roman prefect is that of blasphemy or treason. Now, those two words are different, but similar. The Romans likely wouldn't care about a blasphemy charge because blasphemy is theological. And the Romans don't share the same religious convictions as the Jews. So if it's like this Jewish man said something theologically that we would consider blasphemy, the Romans might be like, cool, I don't care. Like your religion is weird anyway. Like they're, they're just not the same religion. They wouldn't care. But if the religious leaders could adapt the blasphemy charge into something with more of a political tone, the Roman governor would have to take it seriously. So we know from the last scene that Jesus called himself the son of God. Um, the high priest said, are you the Messiah? Are you the son of the blessed one? And one of the only times Jesus speaks in his last uh, 24 hours, he says, I am. And you will see the son of man seated on the right hand of power. So for Jesus to call himself the son of God is a big deal. 
Because in the Roman world, there is one son of God, and it's Caesar. Caesar's predecessor, the Caesar before him, was deified upon death. And then they would like mint new coins, like Caesar Augustus, son of God, is what they would say. Um, so Caesar Augustus wasn't the, the Caesar during the Jesus. Uh, Tiberius? Something like There's a quick Tiberius, then Caligula. Anyway, okay, that's not in the notes. That's okay. Um, so Jesus did call himself the son of God to the high priest. So there we have it. We can do treason. Um, it's highly offensive to the religious authorities within the first century Judaism. It's not really interesting to Rome. But he said he was the son of God, or, or to say he was our Jewish Messiah, they might not care. But in claiming to be the Jewish Messiah, Jesus is claiming royal authority because the Old Testament scriptures, um, they're, they're, they're synonymous. Um, Jesus is claiming royal authority among his own people. And since, here's the catch, his own people are living under Roman occupation, Jesus' claim is akin to high treason. If Jesus is the Messiah, and the messianic hopes of the Jews was that God himself would come and be their king, Jesus' claim is that he is the Christ, which is to say that Caesar is not Lord. In this case, Jesus can be uh, tried as a political insurrectionist, as a Jewish nationalist, as someone who is rejecting Roman rule. So another interesting thing, Roman governors began their workday as soon as the sun was up. The rooster crow was the clocking in. So if the religious authorities had hoped to have Jesus executed that day, they would need to be the first ones at the residence of Pilate. Because if other people had brought, you know, uh, criminals before Pilate, his day might be busy and he might be like, oh, I'll come back tomorrow. So they had to be there at the crack of dawn. Early bird gets the worm. So this is interesting. I want to talk for a moment about what it means to live under the Roman occupation and why Jesus saying he's the son of God is treason. So, and it's actually quite fascinating to put this in our context. So the Romans, the Roman nation, entered the land of Judah in 63 BC. So 63 years before Jesus' birth, they entered the land and they took over by force as part of their imperial agenda. They just took over. This is our land now. So imagine, it's not quite the same um, because it's like an empire with an emperor and like we live in a democracy now, but imagine, uh, we could think of this as somewhat akin to how uh, the British and the French entered the land of North America and took over somewhat by force. Now, these European invaders, as they would have been seen by the indigenous people, oh, we'll get to this one in a second. The European invaders were granted authority by the Pope to claim the lands they discovered and to force the indigenous inhabitants to surrender to the sovereignty of the crown. So let's say uh, we live in Southern Alberta, Treaty 7 land. Uh, the Blackfoot uh, and the Stony would not say in 1877 when Treaty 7 was signed, Caesar is Lord, but they would have to submit to Her Majesty the Queen. And I looked it up. It was Queen Victoria I who was the, the monarch uh, when the treaty was signed. So imagine this. Now, here's the next map. Now, these I know you cannot read the text on the side. That's okay. But you recognize Alberta, I think, most of you, unless you're from far away. But southern Alberta, the dark, faded part on the bottom, that's us. That's our land, Treaty 7. Um, Calgary is kind of in the middle of the dark blob on the bottom. And this is our treaty. So there's Treaty 6 above us by Edmonton, and I think there's Treaty 8, and then a little white here and the little white above Cold Lake is Treaty 4. But we're Treaty 7. And there's a whole bunch of different nations, um, indigenous nations that call this place land. So we're going to try and compare Treaty 7 to uh, uh, Israel. Okay, so on the far bottom, there's a little circle that says 43. Go, go, go more left. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Okay, so that is the place uh, of the Pecani Nation. But then if you go up, kind of, uh, no, no, we're going to go sort of east of Calgary, the 44, the one just right above the word Treaty 7, right? right, right, right. That is Siksika. So Siksika, uh, so, so uh, Kai and I, I think if you've ever driven to Riding on Stone for camping, you've driven through Pecani Land. If you've ever gone camping at Dinosaur Provincial Park, you've driven through Siksika Land. So you can think, oh, east of Strathmore, Siksika, south of Lethbridge, Pecani. Okay, not so different from the space between Galilee to Jerusalem. So imagine a Blackfoot man offends the, so uh, I should say Pecani and Siksika, both nations in the Blackfoot Confederacy. So imagine a Blackfoot man offends the Blackfoot Tribal Council by making a theological claim. Now the British Crown would not care less about the theological you know, quibbles among the indigenous peoples who share a different religion. But if the theological claim was that the Blackfoot man was the divinely appointed chief ruler of the Blackfoot Confederacy, and the Blackfoot Confederacy was under the rule of the crown, he would be putting himself at odds with the Queen of England, and that would be treason. Most of the settlers of the land would not understand or be concerned with the concerns of the occupied Blackfoot people, because most settlers would see the occupied Blackfoot people as being less civilized, at best worthy of charity, and at worst, a pagan people with demonic beliefs who threaten the safety, security, and purity of the crown. So imagine the Blackfoot man was Pekani, the one down south, and he traveled by foot to Siksika territory for a sacred ceremony. Imagine it's a Sundance. It's a ceremony that happens once a year. It's very ancient, very sacred. It's a big deal. Everybody comes, but the European settlers don't know anything about it. It's kind of just their own thing. Okay, now imagine at the Sundance, which is on Siksika land by Strathmore. Uh, the the Pekani man is arrested, interrogated, and then executed on Siksika land, all within tw 12 hours of the Sundance ceremony. If this happened, most can Canadian citizens probably wouldn't know or care, and the Prime Minister all the way in Ottawa would likely never even hear about it, possibly never even hearing words like Siksika or Pekani, and having no idea what the significance of a Sundance ceremony is. So there's a similar dynamic at play happening with Jesus. Jesus is Galilean from the north, not Judean. But both Galileans and Judeans are Israelites and not Romans. So a Pecani man and a Siksika man are both members of the Blackfoot Confederacy. But before the year 1960, neither were considered Canadian citizens. You see, they live under occupation. They don't have citizenship. Now, we know that Indigenous people in Canada fought in World War II, but not as Canadians. So just as Jesus was a long, long ways away from the Caesar in Rome, so the Picani man, who's, say, being tried in Siksika territory, is a long, long ways away from Ottawa and the Supreme Court of Canada. The authorities in Rome wouldn't care about what the Galilean Jews were fighting about in the same way Ottawa uh, wouldn't often or likely care about the concerns of local Picani and Siksika people. Unless there was a pipeline involved, perhaps, or a highway that needed to be expanded, or during a federal election, the prime minister might put on a headdress and make a public statement about his commitment you know, to address the problem of murdered and missing indigenous women and girls. But otherwise, we wouldn't really you know, get their attention. So go back, oh no, go to the next map. This is Canada. So you can see Calgary, oh, you're, you're, you just said, you can imagine where Alberta is, Calgary. So the distance between Calgary and Ottawa, 
Ottawa is way somewhere. Yep, it's about 2,500 kilometers. And I don't know if it's on the next map or we just seen it earlier, but the distance between where Jesus is about to be executed in Jerusalem is only about 400 kilometers farther away when you consider um, Jerusalem and Rome. Okay, so you can, I'll show this one in a second. In Mark's gospel, I'm going to talk about Pilate here for a minute. In Mark's gospel, Jesus doesn't ever stand before Herod. Um, but you might notice that omission because in other gospels, Herod plays a part. Herod's not in Mark. He's not there. doesn't show up. Um, when you consider, or if you know the differences between Herod and Pilate, you realize this is really interesting. Um, and the example of Canada uh, fits quite well. So Herod, actually, could you go back just to the big map of Jerusalem? Or of Israel, sorry. One more. Yeah, yeah. Herod is a governor in the northern region of Galilee, and Pilate is a governor in Judea. So it's like you have a mayor of Calgary and a mayor of Edmonton, or a premier of Alberta and a premier of BC, but the big kahuna, the big prime minister, or the emperor, is really far away. So here's what's interesting. In Mark's gospel, Jesus doesn't stand before Pilate. So Herod's the governor of Galilee, where Jesus grew up, but Pilate is the governor in Judea, where Jesus committed the crime. So the crime, of course, being claiming to be God, i.e. the king of the Jews. So if he's a resident of Galilee, but commits a crime in Judea, there's a hard time figuring out where does he go to trial. It's like if you get a speeding ticket in Edmonton and you want to fight that ticket, you got to drive all the way to Edmonton to fight it in the Edmonton court, right? You can't just fight it here. It's horrible. It's the same idea. But what if you committed a crime in Edmonton, even though you live in Calgary? The Edmonton court might be like, no, go, this is this is, has to happen in Calgary. And Calgary's like, no, he committed the crime in Edmonton. And like, you deal with it. No, you deal with it. Um, and they might kind of pass the case on. And only in a very, very extreme circumstance would the uh, issue be taken to the Supreme Court, right? So here's something else that's really neat. Pilate, Pontius Pilate, didn't actually live in Jerusalem. He lived on the Mediterranean Sea, of course. Why would you not live on the Mediterranean Sea? In the city um, called Caesarea which is a huge harbor city that's known for its pristine beauty and wealth. So uh, see the Mediterranean Sea, Caesarea, we got it? Yeah, he lives there. That's where his house is. He lives there all year round. But as part of his job as a representation of the Roman Empire is that he had to travel to Jerusalem a couple times a year whenever the Jews had their sacred festivals. The Passover is the most important festival. So Pontius Pilate was expected to travel uh, to Jerusalem for one week, and he was to bring with him hundreds of Roman troops. So Passover, if you remember, is a meal commemorating the Hebrew liberation from Egyptian oppression. So as you can imagine, the Passover was a time for rebellion against Rome, if there ever was such a time. You got everyone together, uh, you know, remembering our liberation, remembering when God brought down the Egyptians. You're like, hmm, hmm, tonight's the night. Especially Actually, I'll say that in a second. Um, we know from history that there were several events, just like the one happening right now with Jesus, um, where so-called messiahs had attempted to confront Rome during the Passover. Um, when Jesus was about 13 years old, there was a huge insurrection, and a so-called messiah was crucified during the Passover in Jerusalem, along with all of his followers, and there were hundreds, which kind of makes you think that's why Peter's like, mm-mm, mm-mm. Like, they get crucified. Like, Jesus saw this in his lifetime. Um, so if you think about it, and you remember that um, Jewish people uh, were not allowed, according to their sacred scriptures, to observe the Passover in their hometown. They had to travel to Jerusalem for the event. So we know Jesus is a five-day walk, or like a, it's like a 
several day walk. And that's where you have to observe it in Jerusalem near the temple. So for most of the year, Jerusalem is not a very heavily populated city. You have enough officers, you have enough guards, you can kind of handle it. But Passover comes, the population quadruples. Everybody's in the city. It's like, you think the Calgary Stampede like makes Calgary feel busy? Calgary has a million plus people in it. Now put 4 million people in here for seven days. We're gonna need more police, right? We're gonna need, we're gonna need some like people, it'd be, it'd be tense. So um, the Passover is the sacred festival that's taking place for seven days straight. The population is quadrupled. The streets are packed. There's people everywhere. There's music. There's drinking. There's feasting. There's dreams of overthrowing the oppressor. So essentially, during the Passover, Pontius Pilate travels to his Jerusalem residence to stand guard with his Roman army to keep the Jews in line. That's what he's supposed to do. That's his job. Uh, and he's very good at it. Very good at it. Rome approves until he becomes so violent. We'll talk about that next, next week, maybe. Um, so the, the wild thing is on the morning after Passover, um, the Jewish leadership appears at the gates of Pilate's temporary residence with a prisoner who has claimed to be God's son, a title the Romans reserved for Caesar. Pilate's there for this reason. He's been awake all night. He's been on guard all week. And like Jesus, Pilate is also a visitor to Jerusalem. Like Jesus, Pilate also had to travel for several days to get to Jerusalem for the Passover. And like Jesus, Pilate expects to pack up and travel back home that day or the next day. Pilate holds the power of Rome to make capital decisions in Jerusalem. He does not have disciples, but he has Roman troops standing by waiting for orders. Pilate has political power vested in him by Rome. And Jesus, as you see, has no such power. Jesus' disciples are nowhere to be seen, and Jesus' own people have locked him in chains at the house of power. Now, if Jesus' claims are correct, that he is the son of God, then Jesus has power over Pilate, and Pilate is, in, is intrigued. Here we are. So, an interesting thing. I'm excited to show you this. In other gospel stories, we have four in our Bible, remember? Um, Jesus speaks more. There's more happening. Matthew's account is quite similar to Mark's, except Matthew um, pauses the story from, the, from when Jesus sort of arrives at the door of, say, Pilate's house. Um, Matthew goes on and does this long description about the death of Judas before coming back to Pilate, the scene with Pilate. Um, in Luke, however, Luke and John, it's quite different. So I'm going to read to you a bit of Luke's version and John's, and then I want you to just be struck by how little Mark says, Okay. So in Luke 23, it's the same scene, but here's how it goes. It says, then the assembly arose as a body and brought Jesus before Pilate. They began to accuse him, saying, we found this man perverting our nation, forbidding us to pay taxes to the emperor and saying that he himself is a king. Then Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? He answered, you say so. Same line as Mark. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no basis for an accusation against this man. But they were insistent and said, he stirs up the people by teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee, where he began even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he was, he saw he was under Herod's jurisdiction. So he sent him off to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time for Passover. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had been wanting to see him for a long time because he'd heard about him and was hoping to see him perform a sign. Just like you're reading, dance for me. Sing me one of the songs of your people. 
He questioned him at some length, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. Even Herod and his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then he put an elegant robe on him and sent him back to Pilate. And that same day, Luke says, Herod and Pilate became friends with each other. Before this, they'd been enemies. They bonded over a mutual experience with this wild Galilean named Jesus. Pilate then called together the chief priests, the leaders, and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who has, was perverting the people, and here I have examined him in your presence, and I have not found this man guilty of any of your charges. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. Indeed, he has done nothing to deserve death. So that's Luke's account. Now, John, you have this amazing dialogue between Jesus and Pilate. So it's, it's different again. In John 18, you have, then they took Jesus from Caiaphas, that's the name of the high priest, to Pilate's headquarters. It was early in the morning. They themselves did not enter the headquarters so as to avoid ritual defilement and to be able to eat the Passover. See, John has a different timeline. It's a day earlier. Passover hasn't happened. So Pilate went out to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered, if this man were not a criminal, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, okay, take him yourselves and judge him according to your own law. But the Jews replied, we are not permitted to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill what Jesus had said when he indicated the kind of death he was to die. Then Pilate entered the headquarters again, summoned Jesus, which now makes Jesus ritually unclean for Passover burial. Um, and he said, are you the king of the Jews? Then Jesus answered, do you ask this on your own or did others tell you to ask me? So the question, who's... Who asks the question? It's great. Um, Pilate says, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and your own chief priests have handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to, to you. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Pilate asked him, so you are a king? Jesus said, you say that I'm a king. For this I was born, and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said, what is truth? After he had said this, he went out to the Jews again and said, I find no case against you. So our story in this series is from Mark. And Mark is known um, as a gospel writer for presenting the most human Jesus. The most powerless Jesus in the face of political power. In our story in Mark, it's only five verses, and Jesus will say one thing. And if you pay attention, if you've read um, Mark kind of at once, that chance is coming again, by the way. Um, you pay attention because the, the three words Jesus says in our scene are the last words Jesus says in the gospel until he's on the cross crying. They're the last words. After this scene with Pilate, Jesus will not speak again until he is crying out in anguish, abandoned by God. The sense we get in Mark is that even if Jesus did speak, even if he resisted or defended himself or explained his situation, it would make no difference. He is nothing to Pilate. His people are nothing. His sacred festivals are nothing. His ceremonies, his regalia, his language, his history is nothing to Pilate and to Rome. Did you know, history buffs in the room, you might let me after the death and resurrection of Jesus, the Romans go to war against the Jews. The first major Roman Jewish war is in the year 70 AD. That's like two years after Mark's written. And the Romans will destroy the Jewish temple, outlaw their ceremonies, attempt to destroy their scriptures, their cultural practices, and their identity as a whole. Jews will be expelled from Rome, and many will die. Mark's gospel was written only a year or two before that took place. 
Mark wants to, us to see a Jesus who has no political power. He has a nonviolent authority. We know this because the poor and the outcast follow him, seek after him, and praise him for his ways of speaking. But Jesus is a Galilean Jew living under Roman occupation, observing the Passover with his friends according to his custom. Jesus dreams of a kingdom on the earth that seeks to serve, not to be served, that seeks to listen, not to dominate the narrative. A kingdom that would break down the dividing walls of hostility between peoples, not a kingdom that builds them. Jesus is imagining a kingdom whose citizens wield the authority to forgive sins and silence the possessive forces who silence and control the people of the land. In fact, in Mark, the only words recorded from Jesus' mouth from the end of the Passover meal uh, until his death are these. So I've written out here from the beginning of this sermon series or from the night after Passover, this is it. There's like six lines. This is everything Jesus says for the rest of the story. Are you ready? I am deeply grieved even to death. Remain here and keep away. Then in his prayer, he says, Father, for you all things are possible. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I want, but what you want. Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep awake one hour? Keep awake and pray that you may not come into the time of trial. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Enough, the hour has come. The son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And when the, the mob was there to arrest him, he said, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as though I were a bandit? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching, but you did not arrest me. And then when he's being beaten and interrogated in the middle of the night in the high priest's house, he simply says this, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the last in this scene, Jesus says to Pilate only these three words, you say so. This might not strike you, um, maybe it hasn't, but it strikes me um, the more I study about this context is that Jesus' final words are recorded in his native tongue, Aramaic. They're not recorded in Greek like the rest of the story. In our Bible, in your Bible, when you flip to Jesus' last words on the cross, it says, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani. He is allowed to speak his native tongue. He didn't speak Greek, but all of the words of Jesus are in Greek. He didn't speak Hebrew. No one did. It was a dead language. They just had the sacred text. It was an oral language that was killed by empire. And the only record of it they had is their text. And our Bible preserves his Aramaic cry. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in Mark's gospel, that's the last thing you ever hear Jesus say. The resurrected Lord doesn't speak in Mark's account. That's it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is the last time you hear him speak. So, my beloved, awaken. If we ponder the story, if you flip to the next, it's the text. I'll read this. Okay, Mark 15, 1 to 5. This is the scene. At daybreak, the chief priests with the elders, legal experts, and the whole Sanhedrin formed a plan. They bound Jesus, led him away, and turned him over to Pilate. Pilate questioned him. Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus replied, you say so. 
The chief priests were accusing him of many things. Pilate asked him again, Aren't you going to answer? What about all of these accusations? But Jesus gave no more answers, so that Pilate marveled. And so, before Kathy uh, comes up and just helps us meditate on this a little, simply uh, uh, respond uh, to this text with this question. Um, what power do you have? What power does your neighbor have? We notice the intersections of power, what power Pilate has. In the next scene, you'll see not much. He goes to the crowd and says, what do you want me to do with him? But this is a powerful story to help us reflect on what power do I have? What power does my neighbor have? What kingdom do you pledge allegiance to? Which citizenship grants you more power? Your Canadian citizenship or your citizenship in the kingdom of God? Which citizenship grants you more of a voice? And do you have agency in the matter? Do you even get a say? Which kingdom says your life matters? Consider your neighbors in this neighborhood, in this land, and ask yourself this. Which stories break your heart? Whose attention and whose validation guide your decisions? This week and during this season of life, will you slow down, stay awake, and notice the powers and principalities? And will you ask yourself, who is my king? From whom do I get my authority? You see, we have spent these last 20 minutes reflecting on the sacred scriptures of an occupied people. Scriptures that countless people, countless generations died to preserve and protect. Scriptures that serve as evidence of an ancient language being nearly forgotten, save for the efforts of those who recorded these events, who remembered these stories, who cherished them, who passed them on around the table at sacred meals every time they gathered. These are the stories of the invisible people, the forgotten people, the unseen people. These are their stories about their ceremonies, their memories, their land, their pain, and their hope for a true kingdom. So may we as a church here in Bonesse in 2023 be shaped by these sacred scriptures. And may we be shaped into a people who listen and learn and lament May our hearts break with what breaks the heart of Jesus. And may the attention and the validation of the disempowered guide our decision. May we begin to notice the kingdom of God here in our neighborhood. May we put our chips in with the king of the Jews. May we risk being wrong about the king of the Jews. May we stand before the great powers of this land, seen and unseen. And in our standing, may the word of God expose our fears, our anxieties, our prejudice, our limited imagination. And in our exposure, may we surrender to the king who grants forgiveness, who grants mercy, and who grants a new possibility for the kingdom, the kingdom of God. I'm going to pray, and Kathy's going to come. Crucified God, King of the Jews, you stand silent before the authorities. 
accusations being thrown all around, false accusations, exaggerated ex accusations, and yet you stand in silence. I pray that you, um, you help us to forgive ourselves as we realize that we would not have been any better than Peter or the disciples had we been there. We probably wouldn't have been any better than the religious authorities if that was our role. And we probably wouldn't have done any different than Pilate had that been our role. Help us to see what you can do with a group of fearful people who don't understand, who fail often. And as we see that you have invited us and entrusted us with this message, despite um, our insecurities and our prejudice and our anxieties, I pray that you would shape us to be a people who turn and grant that forgiveness to one another for how we fail each other, how we betray each other. And I pray that the folks in our neighborhood, in our city, in our families, that they would see us like you, Jesus. Dreaming and uh, even willing to die for a better world. Make us citizens of your kingdom, I pray. Shape us by this text. Shape our story by your story. Pray in the name of Jesus. I love how that sort of falls into place with what James was saying about being both for community and individual. And Michaela, how you focused right at the end there on all the community aspects. And now we're going to move a little bit to the personal and what it means to us personally. This is a piece of artwork I found um, that is called, it's actually done by an artist, a Russian artist, Nikolai. G-E, that's his last name, Guy. And so it resides in Moscow right now in a museum there. It's an oil painting. And the title is What is Truth? And so it's often used for that scripture in John uh, where Pilate asks him, what is truth? But it's also used for to depict the silence of Jesus. And so just take a look at that. Uh, for a couple seconds here. Notice the expression. See the things you notice in the picture. Um, there's a professor emeritus at the University of Michigan in Dearborn who taught English and English along with um, the word religion. Right? So his name is Elton B. Higgs, and he wrote a poem along and depicted that he wrote it along with this picture and posted it. And I'm going to read that poem. Let the words sink in. Why, Jesus? No reply. If ever defense was needed, it was then. When Pilate and the rabble confronted you, you are not what you seem. Beaten, friendless, bound. For you had trod the path of God, and angels awaited 
your call. I didn't realize I was going to get emotional. Sorry, you guys. <laughs> These petty men had no idea of the power they dared. And yet, you said nothing. I didn't do anything. Yours was the last defense against the folly of men, the silence of love. Oh, words may be prelude, and daily in the temple they heard yours. But when Satan has triumphed, blending the lies of men with our own despairing doubts to turn our virtue into pitch, the time of words has passed, and we search the depths within to find a place beyond defense, beyond our righteousness, beyond integrity, to stand with the silent Christ. So let's put ourselves in the picture. You know, I picture um, sitting there amongst a variety of citizens. And there Jesus stands before Pontius Pilate. And of course, the religious uh, leadership is around throwing accusations out to him. What do you make of Jesus's silence? I suspect that each one of us has a little bit of a different interpretation of what that silence feels like. What do you think his face registered? I found myself gazing at his face in this picture. This is just one interpretation. But was it defiant? Was there defiance there? Was there any bitterness? Would I be thinking, oh, it's like he's sticking it to him now. Way to go, Jesus. Or more likely, I would be sitting on the edge of my chair, maybe going, he had a parable for everything else. This is going to be a good one. <laughs> and then nothing. How long did the silence go on? How long did people wait for him to say something? Silence doesn't seem to be a very popular response today. We see a lot of not silence on Facebook and in other places. How do you think you would feel about that silence? How would you respond to it? We read in the script or in the scripture that Pilate marveled or Pilate is amazed. I did not do a word study on this, but I read a few different interpretations and they're surprised in there and wondered and astounded. All of those have slightly different connotations to them. 
How do you see Jesus of silence? So at some point in our lives, we've all been unjustly accused of something. Maybe for some of us, that time is now. If that's you, then why not use the next few minutes in reflection to consider your quandary and how you will respond? Is it a time for silence? Like Michaela said, Jesus was not always silent, right? He had parables. He tossed tables in the market. There were times when his anger was expressed. But this time, he was silent. What about your quandary? What is it a time for? Or maybe you are in a time where God is being silent with you. If so, take the next few minutes to think about how God may be loving you in that silence. What does that silence mean? from God, and how is it loving? So let's just take a few minutes here in silence, maybe three to five minutes. Someone has to time it. It's going to seem like a long time, but it's not that long. And then we'll move into communion.